Noah Barkin, who heads up the the small yet mighty uh, Berlin outpost of the Rhodium Group, here to talk implications of Russia's invasion in Ukraine for uh, Germany and the rest of the EU. Welcome to China Talk. Good to be here, Jordan. By the way, the Rhodium application for summer interns is open and interviews have already begun. If you're interested in working with us, please apply as soon as possible at rhg.com slash careers. Noah, how did uh, Germany's defense and foreign policy consensus emerge post-unification? A good question, Jordan. Well, in the uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, German reunification, I, I think there was a feeling in Germany that uh, the the world was sort of bending towards uh, liberal democracy. Um, that Germany, which had been sort of on the wrong side uh, of uh, uh, of multiple wars uh, in in the twentieth century, uh, that 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 the world was now moving in its direction, um, and this was a world that was more peaceful. Uh, there were no immediate threats. The Soviet Union uh, was was being dismantled. Uh, and so Germany uh, started reducing its defense spending uh, quite significantly. Uh, it got rid of, this was in 2011, so quite a bit later, got rid of um, uh, the obligation for young uh, Germans to, to do military service. And on the foreign policy front, it was uh, it was a foreign policy that was really driven by economic interests. I think, uh, for the most part, um, you know, Germany was relying on the U.S. for its security. Uh, it 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 wasn't shelling out uh, the billions that it had for it for its military during the Cold War, uh, and it was uh, you know it it was it was trading with everyone it was turning into a sort of manufacturing powerhouse um and uh, doing exporting it became uh you know uh, one of the world's leading exporters uh and uh, doing business with the US but also with with countries like uh like China which uh i i guess especially in the 2000s was emerging as a big economy and and uh an economy that was quite compatible with that of Germany's Germany, which made machine tools, uh, engineering goods, etc. These are the these were the, the the goods that China really needed. So, uh, so with China, with Russia, as we're seeing now, especially on the energy front, uh, Germany uh, uh, Germany was really doing business with everyone around the world. The the term that uh, became popular. Uh, in this period was Wandel durch Handel, change, change through trade. So the idea that if you trade with China, if you trade with Russia, uh, that this is going to push them politically to become more open. And I think this was this was really an excuse that was <laughs> that was used by the German political establishment, the business establishment, to uh, to sort of make them feel better about doing business with uh, authoritarian countries. Um, <laughs> And let's be clear, it was that, you know, that was a, that was a trendy uh, that was a, tr- a trendy line of thinking worldwide. Right. You, you had plenty of uh, American presidents who, who bought into the same uh, same thesis. Sure. It wasn't just Germany. So I think this this uh, this world in which uh, Germany could trade with everyone, invest everywhere, accept investment from uh, 
countries like China, um, get its gas from Russia, uh, rely on the U.S. for its security. That that began to sort of crumble. Um, well, you can certainly five years ago, but probably a bit longer if you if you look at it closely. I think over the past, the final years of the of the Merkel uh, government, uh, she was in power from 2005 to 2021, so 16 years. Um, she uh, was still, I think, clinging on to this old world of globalization, uh, where a German prosperity was linked to sort of unfettered uh, trade and investment with everyone. And, uh, and uh, of course, there was, you know, Donald Trump stirred a great deal of concern in Germany. There were fears about the U.S. commitment to Europe, to NATO, uh, etc. So uh, Germany, did, the, the, a, a debate did start in Europe about uh, strategic autonomy and independence and sovereignty and relying more uh, uh, on, on themselves, but not a lot changed in practice. This was a debate which, which evolved, uh, but in practice, uh, Merkel did not really tell average Germans that things really needed to change uh, and uh, although she did start investing in the military uh, more, uh, this this was a very gradual process. Great. So, what uh, what happened after Merkel left, and what was your what was the sort of consensus idea of the next five years of what Germany was going to be doing? Um, you know, late January twenty twenty two. Yeah. Well, if you look back at the election campaign. There were three main candidates, Olaf Scholz, who is now chancellor, uh, Amin Laschet, who was the leader of uh, her uh, Merkel's conservative party, uh, and the Greens, who were led by uh, Annalena Baerbock, who is now the foreign minister. Um, and uh, if you look back at the debates in the run-up to the election, Baerbock is the only one who's really saying that things uh, need to change in terms of German foreign policy, uh, that uh, she really painted it as a, uh, this narrative of democracies versus uh, authoritarian countries, which I think, you know, is, is an idea which is quite popular in the United States these days. But her two uh, opponents, Olaf Scholz and Amin Laschet, uh, were both preaching continuity and and sort of uh, dismissing Baerbock as naive because she was suggesting that, well, you, you know, you, 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 can't, uh, you can't continue to uh, bolster economic ties with China, that this, this, you know, Germany has dependencies that it's created. This creates uh, certain national security vulnerabilities and, uh, and, and, and you need to rethink this. And, I think the answer from both Schultz and and Laschet was, uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, dangerous to uh, to to question uh, a foreign policy which is based on values, which is which tries to manage these relationships based on uh, based on sort of human rights and and and, and issues like that. So. Um, their message was we need to continue to trade and invest in, in, in China. 
uh, we need to maintain uh, a good relationship with, with Russia. Uh, yes, Putin is a problem, uh, but uh, we don't need to really uh, rock the boat. All right. So uh, fast forward a few weeks from that point in the narrative. T- take it away, Noah. Yeah. Well, now, I think, uh, you know, Olaf Scholz took power in early December. Uh, so he's only been uh, chancellor for uh, about three months. Uh, he's in a coalition with two other parties, the Greens. Uh, as I said, Baalbek is now the foreign minister and uh, the other party is the Free Democrats. Scholz himself is a member of the Social Democrats, the center-left party here in Germany, uh, which has a, a, a sort of a reputation of being quite close to Russia. The uh, SPD chancellor in the 1970s, Willy Brandt, is known for his uh, outreach to the East, Ostpolitik, uh, and I think the SPD has, has always clung to this uh, of course, this was during the Cold War when Germany was divided between East and West. But uh, Schultz uh, came in not promising uh, a, a big shakeup in, 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 in German foreign policy. But uh, the events, of course, have, have gotten in the way of, of his plans. And, uh, and we saw, you know, fairly early on, you know, I think even even before he w- he came into office, uh, Russia was massing troops on the border with Ukraine. Uh, I think the initial uh, the instinct of uh, of Schultz was to not to play this up too much, to reach out, to try to talk to Putin. Um, I don't think anyone here believed that uh, a, a, a full blown invasion uh, was uh, was was a possibility. Uh, but when that when that happened, when when Putin uh, uh, recognized these two uh, separatist uh, areas uh, in Duansk and Donetsk, uh, and then shortly thereafter began uh, sending Russian troops into Ukraine, that changed the dynamic. Uh, and there was a big debate about uh, would uh, would Germany uh, shut off. Nord Stream 2 or, or uh, Nord Stream 2 is this pipeline that, that Germany, uh, that, that, that Russia built that sort of bypasses uh, Eastern European countries like Ukraine, goes through the Baltic Sea and straight to Germany. And uh, this, was, uh, this was pushed by Schultz's party, the Social Democrats. There was a Nord Stream 1 pipeline that was built uh, under the former uh, Chancellor Gerhard Schröder, who's, who's known uh, to have very close ties to Putin. He's now a, a lobbyist for uh, Russian uh, gas companies. Uh, and another pipeline was built uh, in, the, in the final years of the Merkel government, uh, Nord Stream 2. And so one of the big questions was, are, uh, and uh, this pipeline has essentially been built, but gas has never fl- flowed through it. Uh, would Germany use this pipeline as leverage with Russia? In other words, threaten uh, never to turn this pipeline on uh, if, if there was any sort of mili- military aggression uh, by Russia in, in, in Ukraine. And, and initially, uh, Schultz and members of his senior members of his party, they, uh, they hesitated and were reluctant to to use Nord Stream 2 as leverage, came under huge pressure 
Uh, in the end, Schultz was, uh, went to visit Biden in Washington and Biden at the news conference said, you know, if, if Russia invades, then the Nord Stream 2 is dead. Uh, Schultz himself would not even, ye- didn't even utter the words Nord Stream 2 during the press conference, <laughs> despite being pressed several times. Uh, so I, I think we saw, you know, quite a bit of foot dragging, uh, a reluctance to kind of see this Russian buildup as, as a major uh, game-changing event uh, by uh, Schultz and his government initially. Um, but of course, once Russian troops invaded and we saw pictures of, uh, you know, civilians being, uh, being killed and, and Russian troops rolling towards Keith, um, that changed the dynamic. I think, um, over the course of a weekend, uh, on a Saturday, I think Schultz, uh, and his entourage, they were under huge pressure, um, because they'd been foot dragging on how to react to this and, uh, and and they decided to uh, get in front, get get ahead of this issue. Uh, Schultz uh, stood up in the Bundestag, the the lower house of the German Parliament, on a Sunday, uh, and uh, and and announced basically three things: one, that uh, Germany uh, was going to deliver weapons to Ukraine, which it had always resisted before; two, uh, that it was going to uh, wean itself of its reliance on Russian gas. Uh, And three, uh, and this, I think, perhaps the biggest surprise of all, uh, was that he was going to create a special uh, fund to invest 100 billion euros in the German military. So it was an acknowledgement that the German military was, had been underfunded for years, that we were in a new world. Uh, There was a war in Europe, um, you know, this is Ukraine. There's only one country between Ukraine and, and, and Germany, and that's Poland. Um, and that Germany had to rethink its, uh, its approach, uh, that the world had become much more dangerous, and Germany had to, ha- had to invest in its military. And this is something that uh, Germany, although military budgets had gone up during the, the, the final years of, the, of, of Angela Merkel, uh, they had resisted pressure uh, from the U.S. and other allies to in- invest uh, what um, uh, what NATO agreed back in 2014, which was that every member would invest two percent uh, of its GDP in uh, in its military by 2024. So Germany had been moving in that direction, but very slowly. Schultz was suddenly saying, we're going to do it in one big, one fell swoop. Um, and we're going to reach this, uh, which we're going to reach this 2% target, uh, within a year or two. And we're going to do it uh, by investing massive amounts of money in the German military. So this was a real, uh, a real surprise to everyone. Uh, and now we're, uh, we're at the implementation phase. He has to sell this domestically. Noah. It seems to me the way you lay out the narrative that this was overdetermined and that it, there was no sort of other, you know, had another candidate been elected, had a had a kind of, you know, slightly different political set, consensus been apparent, like regardless of like a reasonable makeup of the German system in 2022, you would still have had this dramatic a response. Is that the case? Do you think there's a bit of Olaf kind of like 
overcompensating because he was like wrong on the issue circa uh, January 2022? Or was the sort of domestic political consensus so strong that these radical measures needed to be taken that there was no way in which you wouldn't have seen this level of a German response to the events? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, it's a good question, Jordan. I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, I think... Uh, um, Certainly that 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 Schultz uh, and his team felt they were uh, felt under huge pressure, that they were sort of behind on this issue, that uh, that they were getting a huge amount of criticism. Germany was uh, criticized by uh, for for not sending weapons to Ukraine, criticized, you know, the, the ambassador, the Ukrainian ambassador here in Berlin was very vocal uh, we had uh, leaders uh, from other European countries coming through Berlin and making very clear the Polish prime minister came through town, sent a tweet right before he was going to meet with Schultz and, and said he was going to try to shake him into to, 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 to having a, a sort of a conscience uh, regarding what was happening in Ukraine. So they were under huge criticism. I think uh, they clearly felt that something needed to be done. Uh, something that was bold to get back on 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 the right foot. Um, I I think um, it's hard to say whether you know whether another chancellor would have done the same. But I think what's very clear is that the story that German leaders were telling the population was no longer credible. Uh, that you can you know continue to do deals with and let let's not let's not forget Putin annexed Crimea in 2014. He, uh, there was a brief uh, invasion of uh, Georgia in 2008. Uh, you know, he was active in Syria, uh, working with the Assad regime. Uh, and despite all this, the German government was agreeing to build pipelines uh, that were bypassing some of these European, uh, Eastern European countries like Ukraine. So, uh, this story that we can do deals with everyone, uh, that, uh, we don't have to invest heavily in our military, in our own defense, that story was no longer credible. So I think whether it was Schultz or another chancellor, yeah. I think that we were moving in this direction and, and, and these changes were, were overdue. In the nearly five years I've been doing this show, recording remotely has always been a bit of a nightmare. Halfway through a great conversation, a connection would die, servers would time out, the audio quality would go busted. The better our conversation went, the more stressed out I got that I would end up losing the audio. I tried at least five different software solutions, including Zencaster, Zoom, Ringer, and Squadcast, but all of them lacked the functionality and reliability of what I finally landed on, Riverside. Riverside has a great feature suite from local and cloud-based recording so that even if my guest internet is garbage, I still have decent sound to share with you all, to 4K video, which I'm going to start using to spruce up the China Talk YouTube channel. But most important, it just works. Before Riverside, 10% of my recordings broke, but in the past two years I've been rolling with Riverside, it has been absolutely rock solid. 
If you're a podcaster or YouTuber or just someone who runs online events, check the platform out at riverside.fm. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just a top-down thing, right? We had hundreds of thousands of people in the street uh, one, one, one weekend in Berlin, and it seems to be a, a real kind of like collective, um, you know, collective outrage at, 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 at what's been happening in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of neuralgia points which this is um which this is pressing on among the german people more broadly well i mean war has a a, a special resonance in in germany um you know there are uh, walking around in berlin you can still feel the war there's a massive uh memorial to the holocaust uh, uh right next to the brandenburg gate um uh, there there Buildings here in Berlin that still have, you know, bullet holes and, and mortar holes in them from from World War II. Uh, it's it's part of the collective memory in in, in Germany, and uh, and I think in order to for Germany and and and, and Germany's German politicians to sort of change their outlook, uh, their 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 foreign and and and, and security uh, policy approach. Uh, I think you needed some sort of major crisis. And we now have a war in Europe. People are watching uh, this uh, on their on their televisions. Um, and it's really resonating. We had uh, we had over 100,000 people in uh, in Tiergarten, which is the sort of central park, uh, which runs up to the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, a few weeks ago, this was this was uh, I think the same day that that Schultz went before the Bundestag and 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 made his big speech. You had a rally uh, yesterday for uh, Women's Day uh, in front of the Russian embassy. Thousands of people, um, and so so uh, this is this is a this is also a ground up thing. And and if you look at the the opinion polls. Germans were always uh, opposed to uh, major- a majority, a solid majority in Germany was always opposed to military interventions, to uh, investing in the military, to certainly delivering weapons to uh, conflict zones. Uh, and that that has flipped. Uh, there's now, you know, 60, 65 percent of Germans are in favor of, of these measures. So um We've seen a, a shift in public sentiment, and I think uh, uh, Schultz and his people uh, probably realized that this was happening, and and that's the reason why they uh, why they did what they did. Yeah. No, you had a quote from an anonymous senior German for, former official saying, "Freedom does not mean as much in Germany as it might in other places." Did it actually always mean a lot, and people were just not worried about losing it? Well, yeah. it, it, this 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 person uh, who's who's a member of the government, but I, I was talking to him on a sort of off the record basis. Uh, he was in the previous government, also in the current one. Um, his his view was he pointed to the fact that after World War II, uh, you know, uh, neither East nor West Germany was truly sovereign. That. Um, you know, East Germany was controlled. Uh, uh, certainly, the Soviet Union had a had a had a hand on what was happening in East Germany, 
uh, and uh, West Germany was divided into uh, uh, zones that the uh, the Allies uh, uh, didn't control, but but uh, certainly in the decades after World War II, it was not uh, perhaps fully sovereign, uh, according to this this person. And uh, so his his argument was that um, you know Germans are, are are used to living without the degree of freedom that that perhaps you, you, you see in some other countries and that, um, and they've also, they also went through traumatic, uh, economic times, the Weimar Republic, uh, in, in, in the twenties, which, which gave rise to the Nazis. Um, so I, I think stability is, is, is very important in Germany, uh, and, and, and with stability, uh, closely linked to stability is 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 economic uh, prosperity, and Germany has had a very good run uh, over the last uh, fifteen twenty years. Uh, partly because it was a trading nation, uh, globalization was flourishing, and it was delivering the goods that that other countries needed. Um, yeah, it, it, I it's it's hard to say. You know, I, I think. Uh, you know, every country has its own its its own relationship with the idea of freedom. Uh, the U.S. Uh, maybe uh, is is a bit is a bit of a, a an outlier. I don't I don't know, but uh, certainly in Germany, it's it, it's not the same attitude that I think we see in the U.S. Um, no, at a close, what is this going to mean for German China relations? Well, I think that's a big question. Um, I think. Uh, Germany is questioning its uh, it, its reliance on Russian gas, uh, and that is part of a bigger question uh, about its uh, dependence on uh, authoritarian states, because uh, it has a very close economic relationship with China. Uh, Germ- some of Germany's biggest companies, certainly the car makers and a few others. Uh, uh, are hugely dependent on the Chinese market. They get, you know, forty uh, percent of their their revenues and profits from China. So I, I think the big question that people are asking now is: is what we're the the changes in German policy that we're seeing with regard to Russia? So uh, Germany saying we're going to uh, wean ourselves of Russian gas because this makes us vulnerable. Is that going to uh, spread to or turn into a broader debate about Germany's dependence on on, on a country like China. Uh, and I think that debate was already percolating uh, before uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I think it certainly is sort of wind in the sails of those people who are saying uh, that you know, the world is moving in a direction who embrace this narrative of democracies versus authoritarians, states. Um, so we'll have to see. I think a lot depends on how China behaves in this crisis. We've seen China uh, offering uh, its support for Russia, um, hasn't condemned uh, this Russian aggression. Now there's, I think Europe is putting huge pressure on China to use its influence with, with Putin, uh, if it has influence, and uh, stop, the, stop the violence. You know, there was a call between uh, Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron uh, with, with Xi Jinping uh, in recent days. And 
I think that's the message to China. You need you need to use your influence to stop this uh, this death and destruction that we're seeing in in Ukraine. And I think if if China uh, is constructive about this, uh, that can can mitigate mitigate the damage to its reputation. Uh, but if China sits on the sidelines and and continues to sort of talk out of both sides of its mouth on on what's happening in Ukraine, then I think that could seriously damage its uh, do lasting damage to its image in in Europe, which is not great to begin with. <laughs> That's perhaps a topic for another podcast. Uh, but th- this certainly has the the, the potential to to damage. Uh, uh, German, China, and and also European China relations. Uh, Noah Barkin, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jordan. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 recommends.